What is cooperative art? There are lots of different ways of answering it that could pull the conversation in a number of different directions or towards a number of different artifacts. What interests me about trying to answer it at this moment in space, political time, uh, has to do with the way that cooperative art might challenge the way uh, mainstream aesthetics or mainstream art practices work to separate artists from audiences. And what pulls me into uh, both the art criticism, like how to assess different kinds of cooperative art, uh, but also in the practice of creating cooperative art, uh, is that activation of um, the public or the activation of the public in relationship to the social but also, if I'm being honest, a little bit of taking the artist down off of a special shelf and sharing it uh, as an as a everyday kind of practice. When I thought about this question, I immediately turned to political action. I don't know why. Much art is collaborative. Some art is consciously collaborative. And some art is consciously collaborative and enacts a kind of criticism of non-cooperation. It's sort of both pr practically and ideologically cooperative. And I feel like the in, in very different ways, uh, each of the examples that we were going to bring to the table today have some sense in which they, they have political and ideological components to them, but I think in very different ways, but are definitely consciously collaborative projects, but again, with very different contexts. I think we both know why you think about political action first, because uh, you are interested in praxis. And I think that that is a important piece of collective or cooperative art. I will, though, keep asking questions about how it can exist in the abstract to help people feel or think differently before they might engage in their own kind of political action. Because if, for me, one of the goals is to collapse the distinction between the artist and the audience, I don't know if all audiences will, no, I do know that they won't all want to engage in the praxis right away or will need on-ramps or maybe prefer on-ramps to that kind of political activity that are, I hesitate to say lower stakes because I don't think they're lower stakes, but to, for folks who are so action-oriented, I think they seem sometimes silly or, less, you know, playful and less directly addressing the ideological, you know, violence of the moment. I confess that I am drawn to these historical exigencies, these kind of special periods, these sort of, uh, of uh, pathological periods or periods that are rich in conflict uh, and particularly in class conflict and the conflict of the struggle for a better world in like 
kind of the broadest sense. And at the same time, whenever I go to a city, I always seek out its museums of contemporary art first and am drawn to often absurdist and things that are relatively apolitical in the explicit sense, but nevertheless are doing the things that you talk about, testing the parameters and barriers between artist and audience, for example. And so I do think that those are political acts in a different and broader sense and not to like sort of colonize what's going on with like all, all of my political categories. Uh, but uh, in ways, in, for example, if you're inviting the audience to question the distinction between a production and, uh, and the rest of the audience or something like that, I think that those do create these sort of collective experiences and collective educational experiences for people. I found this uh, Rancière quote that I think captures a little bit about what you're saying, but keeps pushing it even. Politics and art, like forms of knowledge, construct fictions. That is to say, material rearrangements of signs and images, relationships between what is seen and what is said, between what is done and what can be done. This can be done piece is very important to me in a lot of the artists and art groups that I orient towards because they are living in a little bit of the imaginary and the fantastical in order to pull the concept of politics farther over. So not just like, what should we do, but how might we unshackle our imagination around everything in our everyday lives all the way up to our you know the social and cultural power structures that influence those everyday acts uh, in order to reimagine what can be done because often through no fault of their own artists are trapped within some of the cultural confines of their lives and when i think about cooperative or collectivist art, it gets away from the solo exhibition of a single body of work that might challenge some things, but doesn't push me to, uh, I'll use this word again, reimagine what my life might be like. It might, in fact, recreate or re-represent the exact things that I don't want. I might feel even a little, I'm thinking of an art show I saw recently, with a bunch of naked women painted in neon colors. And at first I was like, oh, what a beautiful celebration of the female form. And like seeing these very uh, saturated, almost like hard to look at, like yellows and greens and bright pinks. Um, and, and I thought it was really playful. But the longer I spent in the room with these pieces, I felt like they were like, advertisements like neon signs and they just recreated this hyper specific female form that I don't identify with uh, you know because it's thin or normatively beautiful in a bunch of uh, ways uh, and I left with a feeling that the artist was not interested in challenging mainstream representations of femininity and instead was like recreating them under the guise of expressionist modern art 
So we may not need that specific example in order to to think about reimagination. But I I really do want to keep pushing back on economically incentivized mainstream art mm-hmm. and the kinds of galleries and private spaces that would show them. So that's another piece of what makes for, cooper- I think, better cooperative art or more effective cooperative art. It's often very public. It's free. It's accessible. Um, and material. There, are, There is a, quite a bit of digital work going on. Uh, but one of the things that I also really like is its focus in materiality, bringing it to the body or bringing it to a space or doing site-specific installations that people who may not have thought they were going to encounter a piece of art that day will encounter and have some sort of you know, significant exchange. Is there an element of everydayness in the in the stuff that Alexis uh, likes uh, in terms of particularly um, these these sort of esoteric performances or or um, you know even like the example that you brought today which is uh, improv everywhere the the troupe improv everywhere from New York City they emerge from the mundane moment or the expected moment and not from the exceptional or unusual moment. Um, And so maybe that's another difference uh, between the way that people might come together collectively to produce their art. They start with something mundane or everyday and then elevate it to a kind of spectacle. Like they are accessing a kind of fantasticness by taking this small thing and, and making it very large literally like they made a gigantic boom box with a plug that was barely barely one person could pick up the end of the plug to try to put it into the um power source mm-hmm. and so they are they're literally trying to blow things up in terms of size or their best buy action where they flooded a best buy store in New York City in Manhattan with a hundred extra employees just by sending a hundred people there in blue polo shirts and khaki pants to disrupt the regular flow. And they, they do video it. They, they document it take photos. And in this particular action at the Best Buy, it's pretty remarkable, not just the way the customers respond. They kind of think it's amazing. They're just like, wow, there's something happening and lots of blue and wow. Okay. And they kind of are starting to figure it out. It's the, the existing Best Buy employees that look the most confused and are trying to, it looks like, process what's happening in their store. is at, And I'm sure there are initial thoughts like, should I call the police? Where are all these people coming from? Is this a problem? Uh, maybe some like elements of delight, a few people like laughing. And then... Also, sometimes looking kind of sad. And I kind of wonder about this confrontation with their own replaceability, right? That there are just a hundred additional people that look exactly like they do and reveals the uh, non-uniqueness of their existence in this particular commercial space or this kind of labor that they're engaging in. And that feels like related to this moment in... uh, space-time, you know, and the way that 
commercial life operates. Well, let's back up just a bit sure. to talk a little bit about Improv Everywhere because they're uh, they are one of the largest performance collectives uh, that there that there is. They're based in in New York City, mm-hmm. um, and they do uh, and this sort of flash mob style. Well, the, the I don't want to pigeonhole it, but that sort of style of showing up at a place and doing something disruptive that draws attention to and sort of lampoons the normalcy of the of the moment and stuff like that is is there are other groups that do the same thing what drew you to uh to improv everywhere good question they've been doing it for a very long time they started in 2001 and so they have this long history of not just doing like the they, one of their most famous actions is the no pants subway ride. They've done it nineteen or twenty times, and it's that repetition and the the kind of growth and evolution of that particular art piece uh, that I think gives them an opportunity to think about not just a singular spectacle, uh, but like an exponential spectacle. Um, then that's not even getting into like the content of what they're doing Mm -hmm. really just a little bit about uh, the form. I also think it's interesting. I I have also described their work as flash mobby or flash mob like, but Charlie Todd, the one of the major players and originators of this group does not like that term. Mm -hmm. Uh, He actually believes that improv everywhere predated the flash mob phenomenon, which he, he, he that checks out if they, came out in 2001. Yeah, and that the the flash mob term often is referring to you know like a group of dancers showing up in a public space and doing the thriller dance or you know this sort of uh reflection of an existing piece of media that's very fun and can have a a pleasurable liberatory quality to it but doesn't have the the explicit focus on the everyday, unless you can, I guess you could consider flash mobs in disrupting the everydayness of whatever space that, that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I really like about improv everywhere is that they, I think they're very effective at collapsing the artist audience distinction because they arm their audiences with the tools to become participants there, uh, so let's talk about No Pants Subway mm-hmm. uh, for a few minutes. So the the idea behind No Pants is pretty simple. A bunch of random people get on a subway car. It's the winter. It's usually like January. They get on at separate stops uh, in the middle of the city. And the, the people who are participating, they look totally normal. They have you know, most clothes on, they're wearing winter shoes and winter coats and, uh, you know, big bulky scarves, but they have no pants on. They have underwear on, but no pants. And so they have these exposed legs. And the very first no pants in 2001 was, or 2002, was only seven men. Uh, So it was this kind of display of boxer shorts and socks and these like bare male legs, which was Pretty uncommon in general uh, in downtown Manhattan, but also specifically in in January. This first event put performers in a costume on a stage in a public space and the audience sort of like had uh, kind of had to make sense of it. But in subsequent years, 
they put out a call to all of the people on their mailing list or all of the people that want to participate. And uh, in the last invocation, they think there were something like 6,000 participants in New York City alone, where everybody is invited to come out and with the same rules, wear all of your same winter clothing, except just no pants. Don't talk to anybody else with no pants on. Don't you know look around and try to suppress your giggles, right? Try to be as regular and everyday as possible. Well, you know, you have thousands of people suddenly flooding the subway. It's it's not, uh, you can't kind of control the affective space anymore. And I think that's the point. I don't actually think that in the more modern invocations of this action, they really want that same uh, seriousness, for lack of a better term, that the, the playful piece of all being in the same place and doing this sort of absurd thing at the same time, you know, brings them into the fold. They too now are performance artists, even though they didn't necessarily design the act uh, or do anything other than show up with no pants on. The entry that I read about uh, Improv Everywhere made a distinction, or they themselves made, make a distinction between audiences that one of their sets of audiences are the witnesses in public, who are often the participants, uh, the, the participants um, wittingly or unwittingly uh, of their work in public. And then they also have a second audience that they explicitly mention, which is their YouTube audience, all of the people mm-hmm. that watch their videos. And I'm thinking about the video that you showed me a few minutes ago, the elevator marathon, mm-hmm. and in that they, uh, they're uh, these these uh, actors show up uh, in an elevator on a regular elevator ride downstairs to a lobby of a of a I assume a business uh, center, although it might have been a hotel, and they're but they're running a marathon. They're obviously running a marathon. They've got a number. They've got, uh, you know, sweats on or whatever, marathon, marathon clothes. That's they're performing why marathon. they, that's why they pay me the big bucks is my descriptiveness. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so they're, the, you know, they're performing the marathon and then they get the person in the elevator to finish the marathon with them at the, at the bottom. And I was just thinking about how different uh, it would be to see that being made and see the productivity of it. Uh, as a production uh, versus seeing it and as and this edited version edited version of it finely edited version of it mm-hmm. on YouTube it's very the video is very compelling but to see them there yeah. I imagine would even give you a better sense of their collaboration of the way in which they are cooperatively enacting and collaboratively performing and also bringing in the audience uh, or certain members of their of the crowd uh, to participate in that with them. Mm-hmm. They sometimes use the language of crowdsourced organizing uh, in order to initiate or, you know, uh, invite participants into their actions and relying on some of their existing highly, because I agree with you, highly produced, high quality digital recreations in order to prompt people to participate in new material acts. So as far as I know, they haven't done another one of these Best Buy events. 
but they parlayed all of the interest from that into their series of MP3 experiments where they invite whoever wants to come to a specific space. You download an MP3 that they have created for that event that has basically instructions on it and other kinds of media. I've never participated in one, although I've always wanted to. Hmm. Um, And you go there, you put in your headphones, you press play at the right exact time, and then uh, you get to fo- follow the directions and do whatever it is they, you know, Simon say it does sort of thing. Is It's movement that people are doing a, and kind of interactive movement or? I think sometimes it is, uh, the ones I've seen, sometimes their movement, like a dance, uh, telling people to dance in a particular way or move their body uh, to organize them into a specific shape so that a photo or image can be taken from above. Other times uh, we saw this image in the book Come Together, The Rise of Cooperative Art and Design, it almost looked like a die-in. It looked like all it was an MP3 experiment, uh, but all of these people were laying on the ground in different kind of contorted positions in some sort of courtyard. And maybe that was just one moment of that particular MP3 experiment. But I think that the idea that they could also create a, like a living statue of sorts Yesterday, you and I were talking about a kind of image work. Uh, the French have a word called the tableau, which is a, I think, like a, a still image of people, but it's candid, like they are in motion doing something. And so the idea that the MP3, in an MP3 experiment, people might be moving through space and suddenly at the same time, they all receive the direction to just freeze. You have created a tableau that's like a temporary material human sculpture that can be documented in film or photography for further consumption, but also to me seems to have a kind of unique happening for the people that are involved and anybody that witnesses it. What uh, what do you think the human mirror stuff that they're doing is all about? Apologies for the very, very base nature of that question. What's this all about? That's okay. I mean, there are good base questions to be asked sometimes. My, I have not seen this particular piece in action. I've only seen still images. My impression, though, is that it has to do with empathy building and drawing additional connections between people, whether they are attempting to mirror people they don't know, right? Like imagine getting on a subway car and picking a twin on the car and just choosing to imitate them over and over again for whatever it is that they're doing. Um, That might... I mean, that is an empathy exercise that you could do like in an improv class, but it usually ethically requires both people be uh, willing participants. Mm-hmm. So if if they're not following strangers around and, and copycatting their, their behaviors, maybe they are taking two actors, in air quotes, and having them mirror one another to perform a kind of empathy or to perform a kind of connection in order to reveal the sort of humanistic threads that keep people together, especially in a space like the subway car, where there are lots of 
expected communicative, what is it called? Uh, expectancy violation theory, mm-hmm. right? When norms, people, yeah. Yeah, norms. Like people stand, you know, you're not supposed to talk to each other. You're not you're, supposed to look at each other. And, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, this is my safe space where I'm getting ready to go to work or this, you know, or just like, don't bother me. And there mm-hmm. are, there are perfectly valid reasons for some of those uh, feelings in those spaces. And yet to me, the uniqueness of interrupting it with a kind of empathy exercise like the human mirror reveals that that's just an artificial choice that we've made that they're just norms that we have uh, either accepted or whatever and we might choose if we wanted to to act differently in those spaces or to be more humane with one another i really like improv everywhere but i don't think that they're perfect and one of the the things that i find some tension around is, you know, well, what, what do people take away? How do, how, how does one engage in empathy after you review something like that? Especially if it's something that you only encounter briefly in an everyday space that, you know, not everybody wants to think deeply on their way to work or whatever, you know, they don't want to absorb the, potential message or the variable meanings that are are embedded in that moment. You and I might be fascinated by it, but that's because we're interested in politics and aesthetics, right? What is that an everyday person like my dad, who's like, I'm not an art critic. How am I supposed to know if it's good or bad? You know, he just sort of dismisses these things out of hand uh, as, you know, playful or non-serious practices. Well, a couple of things I think that I would say about that. The first is uh, that as far as I know, there is no IRB uh, (laughs) with performance art, with public performance art, disruptive public performance art. Uh, uh, Although I suppose that if someone were doing that uh, as a study. Uh, and affiliated with uh, uh, some, you know, universities doing their their thesis project or something like that, then I guess they would have to work through IRB. What do you plan on doing? Oh, I plan on getting on the subway and mirroring every move that this person makes. What will be the projected effect on blah, 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 blah. Uh, but anyway, um, the other thing that I wanted to say is sometimes you can be indifferent to that public performance sometimes you can even feel hostility to that public performance but that doesn't mean that you're unaffected by it and that and and in many cases it could plant the seeds Uh, and so this is a place where my action orientation may actually offer an insight uh, that uh, uh, that that i think is is worthwhile uh we, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I do and have done in the past with some of the groups that I'm affiliated with is that we table, we sell uh, labor newspapers and books and stuff like that at tables. And it's the phenomenon of the person that walks past you kind of indifferently, sometimes a passing glance, uh, sometimes actually looks inconvenienced or uh, nonplussed by what you're doing. And there have been a number of times where that's happened in my experience and six months down the line, that person's a member of the organization. They're doing work in it. Sometimes they're a key member of the organization after that, you know, long period of indifference. I wonder if art that is designed to disrupt people's 
uh, norms in that way might have a similar effect, that sort of seeding effect. I guess the last thing I want to say is that it's so important, I think, that this type of thing, even if I don't look at everything that Improv Everywhere is doing and immediately feel like I know what the political implications are, there is something to be said for just that activists in particular or people that engage the political just need to be dosed every once in a while. Just need something that will incongruously or otherwise unexpectedly shift their perspective a little bit because it will help them think outside of the box in other things that may not even be directly related to the content that they're seeing in this in the street performance. But it's like some, again, some sort of seed is planted in, in this case, one that maybe shifts things around a little bit. And to me, that's really part of the essence of growth that art captures without having a specific purpose or a specific thesis or a specific argument that a piece might be advancing. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I like absurd, absurdist art so much is that uh, I, it, I have often undergone great transformations in my thinking that have translated into different action and different conceptualization of action because of those seemingly absurd but very incongruous mm -hmm. kind of things that I've seen. Uh, sorry, if if I were paid five cents a word, I we would be <laughs> on our way to fucking Vegas right now. So I apologize for that. That's okay. Well, I think that it, I think that captures the end of that Rancière quote about the what can be done, and I also want to believe that is true. I also uh, really appreciate the artifact that you're bringing to the to the discussion today, the film, The Salt of the Earth, because it takes an expressly political situation offers it in an aesthetic adaptation, uh, but also takes a lot of risks. And I think I'll be curious to hear what you say has uh, lands with our more, our, our comrades that want more explicit argument a little bit better or mm -hmm. a little bit easier even though I think it also captures some of what Rancière is talking about, about what can be done. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's an aesthetic experience in ways that are bigger than I think it's p political uh, experience. But obviously the, the political context of it has, is hugely, uh, you know, has huge weight and, and maybe tends to sometimes suck all of the other parts of the, the film into it that way. But we talked about at the beginning that that what drew us to this discussion was Alexis being fascinated with art that public art that disrupts the everyday and with Matt being fascinated with historical uh, acts of great solidarity in art making that reflect a very important sort of tumultuous time. And that how those are in some ways different, although in some ways they're very much alike. But Salt of the Earth is definitely the latter. It's definitely mm -hmm. something that happened because of an exigency. An exigency created Salt of the Earth. And that exigency was the Cold War and McCarthyism, and particularly the blacklisting of many, many artists, uh, uh, 
Uh, and that blacklisting occurred across a wide array of different uh, art institutions and uh, artistic individuals and different genre and different styles and, and everything. And so Salt of the Earth is a 1954 movie. It's written by Michael Wilson, who later won an Oscar for writing uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai uh, and was blacklisted at the time of Salt of the Earth, directed by Herbert Bieberman, who uh, and produced by Paul Jericho, all three of those people, writer, director, and, and producer, all blacklisted. They responded to that. They're all blacklisted as communists. They responded to that by producing an unapologetically pro-labor, feminist, pro-migrant, migrant and Mexican-centered uh, film uh, movie based on the nineteen on, on a 1951 zinc strike uh, that took place in New Mexico. Everyone involved in the film, in both the cast and the crew, were either non-professional cast and crew or were blacklisted cast and crew. So uh, Will Gear, uh, the gay communist uh, who later goes on to be Grandpa Walton in the 1970s on the Waltons, uh, is in the movie, plays a sheriff. Uh, and then, of course, the, the star of the movie, uh, Rosara Revueltas, uh, is a Mexican actress. Um, and uh, again, everyone is, they're either blacklisted or they are from Mexico or they're non-professional actors and crew. One of the things that strikes me about watching the film now is that the themes of the film and even most of the dialogue of the film would still work now Almost 70 years later, the plot concerns not just the zinc strike and the unionization around the zinc strike, but also a struggle within a struggle in which the women in the families of the strikers uh, and you know some of them who work, uh, some of them who do domestic work, demanded that they not that they be part of the entire the planning and execution and strategization of the strike and the pushback that they receive and how ultimately the coming together of those struggles has to happen in order for the strike to succeed. Uh, all of the, all of these things, I think, are themes that that really speak to us now. But as I'm watching the film, I am I am struck by what it must have been like. And this is where this is why I wanted to talk about it in this context, what it must have been like to be part of that collective project. Mm. Uh, a, uh, you know, Martin Luther King talks about the dangerous unselfishness. This must have felt like a dangerously unselfish project. It must have felt like an unselfish project because uh, probably nobody, you know, making a lot of money from it, but also a dangerous project because it was being investigated by the FBI while it was being made. It was being condemned by uh, a, a wide array of critics and uh, statespersons and government officials. Um, the FBI investigates it. And in the middle of the film, uh, in the middle of production, uh, Rosario Revueltas is deported uh, because immigration and naturalization at the behest of the FBI go in and harass the film crew. And then uh, and then she is deported uh, in the middle of the film and they have to uh, do some some heavy lifting to kind of make up for uh, her loss. Uh, luckily, she had uh, I think that they had filmed 
some of the most important sort of key dialogue points, but there were other places where they had to use a double after she was deported. And how many movies are, you know, while they're being made, openly political movies, openly antagonistic political movies being made that are then suddenly raided uh, by immigration and, you know, they're the key, uh, uh, the key cast member uh, deported. It, it, to me, it boggles the mind and sort of brings to mind that kind of collective sacrifice that does happen in these moments of kind of historical, historical exigency. So that's kind of what keeps me coming back to the film is not just how well executed it is uh, and how relevant it still is in terms of all these these questions that it raises, um, but also just what it must have been like to be part of that project. I like how you're exploring the everyday nature of the construction of the artifact, like how, like the experience of creating the film or participating in it. When I first watched the film, I had some of that historical context in mind because you had told me a little bit. I read like the Wikipedia entry, but it wasn't that I watched the film and I got the... Uh, very things you're describing about the struggle within the struggle, particularly around uh, women's agency as political participants in the strike and, you know, what is power and how does that relate to labor, uh, including domestic labor and the body. Um, however, it wasn't until we talked much later and much like the number of all the words you just said that I get the full historical context and I wonder about how other audiences receive the film without that historical exigency, or uh, I I guess the question for you might be, what are the aesthetic choices that are made that reveal some of those things that are going on behind the scenes, so to speak, or the sort of historical exigency? Mm -hmm. The scenes, many of the scenes are cut in, very kind of communal, relatively communal and very participatory ways. Uh, there are many, many scenes that aren't, aren't crowd scenes, uh, not ensemble scenes, uh, but scenes of many, many actors on the screen together. Uh, and there's a sort of busyness uh, in it uh, that reminds me of, of some of the work, you know, 20 years later by Robert Altman. Um, and so there, so there is that, you know, kind of, I don't know what you would call it, a montage there's a certain montage portion of it, but there's also actors speaking at different times in the film who, uh, who are, uh, you know, this is the first time that they've spoken on a movie and they're standing up and, and, and as the, uh, you know, as the conversation is going on in the dialogue about the importance of each and every individual, the aesthetic, uh, at least of how people are situated together and the spatiality of it also sort of reflects that, that there's not a whole lot of centering of, of a few individuals with everyone else sort of in the background. It's, a, it's very much an ensemble and kind of group uh, film in terms of the action and in terms of the, of the dialogue. So I think that's one, that's one part of it. There's a realism to mm-hmm. some of it um, for its time also that I think is probably a, a reflection of uh, the respect for the realist tradition, I think, in socialist work and socialist propaganda. I have like a, a separate thing to talk about, unless you wanted to say more about how 
the historical exigency either impacted or manifested in the aesthetics? Uh, no, I think uh, I think okay. that's, that probably covers it. I think this phrase, danger, dangerous unselfishness, that's the right, mm-hmm. is, is really curious and it feels very expressly political. And I, I guess I'm thinking about some of my orientations around pleasure. For, for me, a lot of what interests me about uh, art in general is not just the everyday, but accessing a liberatory, pleasurable everyday where we aren't assaulted with the violence and terrifying uh, realities of our life. And I, d- I don't mean it to be an escape, but more like uh, a, a metonym, like zooming in on a granule of uh, liberatory pleasure as a way of trying to think about fanning it out and experiencing it elsewhere. I don't want to imply that I think salt of the earth was unpleasurable because I think there are different ways of interpreting pleasure. I know that I got great pleasure listening to the main character berate her husband for not wanting her to participate in the strike. It felt great to (laughs) hear her push back on his uh, restrictive, repressive, patriarchal bullshit. However, there is so much pain also expressed through these more literal, what you just called realistic representations that I, I wonder about uh, if, if improv everywhere is maybe too flippant sometimes. Are things like Salt of the Earth too somber. serious and somber in a way that maybe reinforces the part of the Rancière quote about, well, what can be done because this is the reality that we're in or the material restrictions versus the liberatory, playful imagination of what could be. I immediately, when you started saying that, I immediately thought of some scenes in the movie that were absolutely celebratory and even kind of whimsical and and I would say pleasurable in terms of uh, the the sort of the 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 pleasurable and comic side of solidarity. So they were parties that they had uh, at various points. Sometimes they were they would celebrate their their victories or their steps forward. Other times they were just getting together uh, to celebrate being together. There's also when the when the women replaced the men at the picket line. There was a great deal of uh, this was conducted very much in the comic frame. And I'm not saying that just being in the comic frame makes it pleasurable, but there again was this sort of this image of people laughing together uh, and sometimes laughing together at the expense of the of management who they were striking against or at the expense of the, the sheriff and law enforcement. There were moments in the film and when many of those happened or other sort of 
somewhat comical things happened in terms of people's uh, interactions, the people I was watching the film with laughed. We laughed out loud mm -hmm. at some of those things and that there were elements of the film that incorporated some comedy. And much of that comedy was the comedy of solidarity, the comedy of people acting together and sometimes just partying together and experiencing that. I appreciate the distinction around different audiences because I, it seems important. You are right. You are you watched this film at your commune with your comrades that are you and and many of the people here are are already politically activated in such a way that they can feel the comic frame perhaps or interpret it, receive it in a way that not all folks would who maybe don't have that political education and. Again, I'm not trying to diminutize the pleasure. It just, just like certain kinds of fine art and certain kinds of, um, just like mainstream media, you know, I have plenty of like critically, critically minded uh, aesthetic theorist friends who love the Avengers and they derive great pleasure out of this candy pop movie franchise. And it's, it's just about how, how they orient towards the film or how they orient towards the artifacts. And I also appreciated Salt of the Earth. But when I think about political education as a teacher or as a person who does street performance and street work, that's not the direction I probably am going to go because it's, uh, not going to plant the proverbial seed that you were talking about in a maybe oversimplified form that feels different. Maybe not even just feels good, but fe it helps people feel something. I think that's an important distinction around pleasure. It's not just about feeling good. It is about feeling mm -hmm. affect and in many directions. Where Improv Everywhere brings... Um, bystanders into its productivity and expressiveness. Mm. Uh, Salt of the Earth brought together um, professional film folks and people who had never yeah. worked film in their lives because all of the professionals have been blacklisted. And so it opens the door to this kind of uh, breaking down of the very walls that are ideologically being deployed against the principal makers of the film. I, I agree. I had written down everyday actors engaging in an everyday experience. And this sort of contrast around non-professional actors, the word I was thinking of was grit. It produces like a gritty, like less smooth production style that is a little sand in your pants right mm -hmm. it's like you feel it it doesn't it it doesn't hurt unless you left it there for a very long time but it but you can definitely feel it and it grabs your attention and makes you pay attention in a different kind of way than say the smoothness of a mainstream piece of media and i think that does disrupt the consumption of the easy consumption of of film which is i will admit one of my issues with film usually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that it makes for a passive audience member who's being entertained unidirectionally mm -hmm. uh, and that they feel the audience member feels entitled to 
a certain quality of story or a certain quality of performance uh, that that reinforces or re-represents sort of mainstream both aesthetics and power relationships. And so this film certainly cuts against that, and I appreciate it. And that is where I also derive some pleasure, is by, by feeling that grit and recognizing its place in a long history of filmmaking mm-hmm. and political activism. Mm-hmm. To me, good art always has some element of disruption and disruptiveness in it. And I think that we have talked about disruptiveness in two different ways, but both instances, these pieces of art were disruptive in part because of who composes their product, their production, who's part of the team, who's on the team, who's pulled into the making of it. And so there's the, the, the things that are good about it and the things that are disruptive about it are a function of their collectivity or their the the uh, collaborative nature of of the work. The interactive or participatory quality is part of the disruption that you're talking about, but also part of what collapses that artist audience distinction. Uh, to me, this like good art prompts an audience member to ask, "What am I looking at, and why?" Not just what is going on here. And then subsequently, who who am I in relationship to this thing? Or do I believe in the the thing that I'm looking at or, or experiencing? I, I think that it is delightful to think about anyone just seeing these people on the subway without their pants on and, and going, yeah, why do I wear pants all the time?